Please take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4. Last week, last Sunday evening, when we were together, I spent a great deal of time at the beginning of my sermon emphasizing the difference between cause and effect as it relates to salvation. And as I did... I related specifically that we at Legacy Baptist Church do not subscribe to a theology that teaches lordship salvation or Arminianism, as it's been known to be called, or Reformed theology. There's a word in our text, however, that is used quite regularly as the very foundation for this last system that I just mentioned, Reformed Theology. Last week, you recall, uh, the text was actually verses 1 through 4, and I read verse 4, but I didn't uh, speak about verse 4. And verse 4, if you're there, says this, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. God. The word is election. One of the five primary points of Calvinism, which is the um, salvation subset of Reformed theology, is unconditional election. And unconditional election teaches that God has chosen from eternity past those who he would bring to himself based not on any human merit or an exercise of the will, but rather exclusively on God's choice and mercy. Consequently, God has divinely appointed those who will be recipients of his mercy as well as those who will not be recipients of his mercy. Now, according to this theological system, the concept of election is therefore that God has preordained or elected those who would become beneficiaries of salvation and those who would not. And again, I I said last week, I, I, I regret that some of my messages have to take this tone. I am not preaching this evening formed theology. Uh, in this room, uh, I do not believe we have uh, anyone uh, that would um, take upon themselves that label, but I know that online uh, there may be. And for those of, of you listening online, uh, stick with me here if you would. If you are uh, quite sympathetic or uh, rather involved in Reformed theology, would you listen tonight to what I have to say? Would you take the time to consider uh, how I believe Reformed theology gets wrong? The doctrine of election, I I do not disagree that there is such thing as a doctrine of election. My disagreement is what we are elect unto. Reformed theology tells us that we are elect unto salvation, that salvation is the election that we take part in as believers. I do not believe the Bible teaches this. I believe the Bible teaches that our election is based not on whether or not we will get saved, but as to not the cause of of salvation, as we mentioned last week, but rather the effect of salvation, that as believers we are elect unto certain privileges. And I hope that this will help you this evening. Uh, I uh, will not be able to settle the debate. Um, I believe the Bible is very clear on this, and and, uh, for those with uh, a ready heart, I believe the Bible could indeed this evening settle the debate for you. 
And yet at the same time, I understand that this is an issue and even the scriptures we'll be reading this evening um, can be ambiguous to the extent that um, if we are willing to explain away a few things, uh, we can read into these various passages a salvation idea. I just don't believe, and I believe you'll see this with me this evening, that that is the clear and natural sense. We have to reinterpret. We have to wiggle salvation into the idea of election. And I think that if you are honest with yourself this evening, you'll see that with me. So what we're going to do this evening is learn that the concept of election in the context of the New Testament is not speaking concerning salvation, or what we called last week the cause of our salvation, but rather concerning our lives as believers. What happens after? The effect of our salvation. In the same way, verse 3 speaks of the effects of our salvation, the work of faith, the labor of love, and the patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I would like to do this evening is walk through every occurrence of this Greek word, which is translated election in this passage in our Bibles. And as we do so, I believe we'll see each time it's used, it's, it's quite clearly not speaking of salvation. And by God's grace, this will help us understand more clearly that the teaching that has uh, taken uh, a, a strong hold today on evangelical, on the evangelical and now creeping into the fundamental world in regard to election is at best out of balance. And to the extent that many take it, it is indeed absolutely erroneous. And so we begin. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts 9 in your Bible, please. Acts 9 records the conversion of a man named Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee and a persecutor of early Christians. He was also a persecutor to Christianity as a whole, but he converts to Christianity, and he does so through very unique circumstances. Perhaps you know the story, but let's read it so that we can all get on the same page. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, Why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembled, and he, excuse me, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, 
and neither did eat nor drink. So here we see Saul being confronted by Jesus Christ himself and told that there was work for him to do. Saul gives testimony of his conversion in several places in the scriptures, one being Acts 22, another being Galatians chapter 1, and each time he does, he indicates an almost immediate transition from persecutor to follower, an almost immediate transition from unbeliever to believer. And so we see that it was, uh, as, as we, we can understand, uh, we would recognize that his conversion took place on the road to Damascus, that as he was on his way, he recognized Jesus Christ as Lord. He called Jesus Christ Lord, and he immediately recognized his error. He had been kicking against the pricks, that word literally being one of those cattle goads, that he had been kicking against conviction. Jesus said it was hard for him to do so, but now Jesus was going to make it very clear to him that indeed Jesus is Lord. When Saul is led into the city, he's taken to a house and a man named Ananias comes to see him. Ananias is naturally concerned about Saul since this man had a reputation as a destroyer of Christians and he voices these concerns beginning in verse 12. Excuse me, verse 13. And Ananias answered as the Lord told him to go and and see this, this man Saul. Ananias said, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But notice God's response to him, beginning in verse 15. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a, and here's our word, chosen, elect vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, a surface level reading of this might suggest to us when Christ says that he is chosen, that this means he was chosen to be saved. But this is a logical inference. It's not actually what the text says. What does the text say that he was a chosen vessel unto? Unto becoming a bearer of Jesus' name before the Gentiles. And see, this is the problem. When we think of election through a template of salvation, well then, yes, we can work salvation into the idea of election, and logically speaking, it can make sense. But when we look at what the Bible is actually saying, it's not saying that Paul was elect unto salvation. It's saying that he was elect of God to bear the name of Jesus to the Gentiles. Now, you can reason and here I use that word again, reason, intellect, uh, the idea of logic, you can reason that if Saul was chosen to be a minister, he must first be chosen to be a Christian. But that is nothing more than a logical inference. That is not what the Bible teaches. And just as we talked last week about the importance of distinguishing cause and effect as it relates to salvation, the text indicates that Paul was chosen unto an effect of his salvation. Nowhere does it say that he was chosen unto the cause of salvation. In other words, Paul was elect to be a minister of the gospel. He was not elect to be a Christian, or at least the text does not say he was elect 
to be a Christian. But pastor, he had to become a Christian before he could become a minister of the gospel to the Gentiles. So if he was chosen to be a minister of the gospel to the Gentiles, doesn't that demand that he was chosen to be a Christian as well? Well, no, it doesn't. May I give you an illustration? It's an imperfect illustration simply because God is sovereign, but I believe it will still help us. My son's name is Benjamin. It's a Hebrew name. The Hebrew word ben meaning son, and when it's placed before a proper name, it inherits a preposition meaning son of. So my son Benjamin's name literally means son of Jamin, which happens to be my name. Now, my firstborn son was elected unto that name from a very early point in our marriage. I didn't know if I would have a son, and if we had born twin boys instead of twin girls for our first, neither one would have received that name. We decided that, but my wife and I knew that if we had a single boy as our first, that that boy would be named Benjamin, because we thought that that was kind of fun, having uh, a son being named in the Hebrew, son of Jamin. Now, the fact that Benjamin was elect unto this name doesn't change the fact, uh, doesn't change the, the concept surrounding the fact that he's my child. My daughters are still my children, even though they are not elect into the name Benjamin. Had our son been born and he had, uh, we had not named him Benjamin, he would still be my son. They, my daughters were not chosen unto that name. He was. If we had born twin boys, they would have been my sons, but neither one would have been chosen unto that name. So I cannot say, nor can anyone say, that Benjamin is my child because his name was chosen before his birth. Because he was elect unto something before his birth, because he was elect unto the name Benjamin, this does not mean that his childhood or the reality of him being my son or my child is contingent upon his election. Nor did we have a man-child because we'd already chosen a man-child's name. Benjamin was given that name because he met all the qualifications of a child who was elect to receive the name Benjamin. He was a single boy. So he was a single boy, therefore he was elect unto the name Benjamin. We will tell Benjamin that his name had been chosen for him before we even knew that he would exist. But he didn't come into existence because we had chosen his name. Does that make sense? In a similar way, Paul was not chosen to be saved simply because he was the man, he was a man who met the qualifications that God had desired for one to bear his name to the Gentiles. Even though we might take this a step further as we think of perhaps the Old Testament character Jeremiah where God told him that he had chosen him in the womb to be a messenger unto him. This still does not insist that they were chosen unto salvation. Simply that God being sovereign, and this is where the illustration breaks down because I'm not sovereign, but God being sovereign, knowing that they were men of character who would respond to the gospel should there come the circumstances, the right circumstances with which to be confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. God, knowing these things, is certainly within his power to elect them unto a purpose. 
Now, there's no argument by me that God did not go out of His way to reach Paul. God, without a doubt, went out of His way to reach Paul, to bring Paul to a place of conversion. Paul was elect unto a ministry, however, as an effect of his conversion, in the same way, or in a similar way, my son was elect unto the name Benjamin as effect of his birth as a single boy. So in this first example, we already see the problem with the idea that election is unto salvation. You say, well, pastor, I don't see a problem. I think you're crazy and I think I'm right. Well, that's fine, but look at what the Bible says. And even if you didn't like my illustration, or even if you didn't, you didn't quite follow me, or even if you said, "Up oh, the same old argument being pulled up time and again," the fact of the matter is, the Bible doesn't say he was elect unto salvation. What the Bible says is that he was elect to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. If you want to say that means he must have been chosen unto salvation, that's fine, but the Bible doesn't say it, and it's not a valid inference. It's a logical inference, not a spiritual inference. It puts the cart before the horse. It confuses cause and effect. It logically infers that because a person is chosen to a task, they must also have been chosen to meet the qualifications for that task. Namely, they must have been chosen to be a Christian. It's logical assumption, not a biblical assumption. Let's look at our next occurrence in Romans 9. Romans chapter 9, please. Romans chapters 9 through 11, we might say, are the poster passage for teaching on election, particularly in a Reformed context. And the first time this word is used in these three chapters is in Romans chapter 9, verse 11, within the discussion of election using the examples of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look with me, if you would, in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. Paul writing here in Romans, and he says, Not as though the word of God had taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being, or excuse me, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election, there's our word, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So here we see a passage that states without question that people are chosen apart from works by God even before they are born. They are elected. They are elected unto something. The question is, what is the something that is being spoken of here? Now, I have no argument with this statement that they are elect. I have no argument with the statement that that they they are elect unto something. Where I have a problem is when we try to say that the something that they are elect unto is salvation. Even logically, if we recognize what happened in those those, uh, Old Testament accounts, 
We cannot at all say that what was happening was that certain people were being chosen for salvation and certain ones were not. What is Paul illustrating here? He begins in verse 6 by saying, They are not all Israel which are of Israel, that not every one of the seed of Abraham is blessed with spiritual blessings, is blessed with the promises unto Abraham, physical as well. In other words, those of the nation of Israel are God's spiritual people, are not God's spiritual people, excuse me, simply because they are of the nation of Israel. They're not in, by default, into God's spiritual blessings. To this day, the Orthodox Jews believe that they are in God's good graces by default because they are God's chosen people. But in much the same way, the idea of Reformed theology has the same idea. The, uh, the, 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 they've confused the concept of election in, in a very similar way to the Jews and the way that the Jews have. And Paul makes this very clear in his teaching. He says in verse 8 that the children of the flesh are not the children of God. It is not a default that the seed of a blessed man is blessed himself. And Paul's case in point here is Ishmael. Ishmael was Abraham's son, but was not the one through whom God chose to bless. He was not the one who would be um, the, the perpetuator, or he would not continue the line of blessing. God had chosen to use the son, not of Abraham and Hagar, but of Abraham and Sarah. And so Ishmael, being the son of Abraham and Hagar, was disqualified to be the heir of the physical promises of God to Abraham, to be the heir to this special seed through whom would come Messiah, through whom would come the blessing upon all people, through whom would come or would be given unto him the land. Now note, nowhere does the text imply that Paul is talking about salvation. Nowhere does the text imply that Hagar or Ishmael could not be saved, only that they could not be a part of the chosen nation, that they were not elect unto this privilege, this promise of God to Abraham. The promise of God was not salvation. In Romans it says, Abraham believed God's promises and that was counted unto him for righteousness. Abraham was not chosen unto salvation. Abraham was chosen to receive promises and Abraham's belief in the revealed word of God is what brought him into a place where he was able to receive those promises. He was elect unto the land and the seed and the blessing, not because uh, that, 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 that he was not elect unto salvation. His salvation came as he believed that he would receive that to which God had elected him unto. Do you see the difference? Can you perceive where the confusion in this passage lies? Can you discern the difference here between cause and effect? Isaac was not born of Sarah and Abraham because he was the chosen seed. Isaac was the chosen seed because he was born of Sarah and Abraham. Now, follow this logic through. We are not born again because we are elect. We are elect because we have been born again. And this will be our conclusion. And as we go, it will become even more clear. Find anywhere in the scripture where you can see uh, it said that, that Abraham was elect unto salvation. 
or that Isaac, when God spoke of Isaac being the one through whom Abraham's name was called, that that was an indication that God was choosing him unto salvation and rejecting Ishmael for salvation or Hagar for salvation. You won't find it. it it's not in the Bible. So then Paul uses the same concept to speak of Isaac's children, Jacob and Esau. And this is a little bit of a different circumstance. These were twin boys, Esau coming out first. He was therefore by default supposed to be the one through whom the blessing would come. He was the one that was supposed to receive the land and the seed and the blessing. The promises of God through Abraham and Isaac were then supposed to, according to what would be expected because he was the firstborn child, they were supposed to pass through Esau in a similar way that they were technically supposed to pass to Ishmael because Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn son. So the promises were supposed to pass to Esau, but he was rejected as the seed, the Bible says. Jacob was chosen as the seed. And this does not mean that Esau could not be saved it's sim- and nowhere in the text will you find that. Nowhere in the text will there be any implication that Esau could not be saved. It simply means that he was not the one chosen to be the father of the blessed nation of Israel. And God reserves the right to choose people to do whatever he will. God reserves the right to take a man and to raise him up and to use him greatly. He also reserves the right to take a a great and a godly man and keep him in a very small place, in a very humble place for his entire life. This is the idea that God has the right to elect us unto his purpose. God had the right to say, nope, Jacob and Esau, Jacob's the one I'm choosing. God had the right to say, nope, Ishmael or Isaac, Isaac's the one I'm choosing. God has every right to do that, but nowhere does the text imply that he's speaking about salvation here. Esau had the right lineage, but he was not the one who had been elected. Rather, the Bible says God loved Jacob and hated Esau. There you go, pastor. Hatred. He hated Esau. Well, this does not mean hate like we use the word hate today. This is not speaking of emotional hatred in the uh, way that we would say, I hate something today. Although that word hate has also um, been somewhat trivialized, uh, even according to our own dictionary standard today. But that's not what this word means. Literally, the word means to place lower in value or priority. That God placed Esau lower in um, honor, in, in election, than Jacob. So that Jacob received a higher honor from the Lord. Well, why? Because God chose to. That's it. Because God chose to give Jacob this privilege. And God chose not to give Esau this privilege. And God is fully within his right to do that. God did not condemn Esau to perdition. In fact, God greatly blessed Esau, we see in the scriptures. And God blessed his posterity, his heritage. But God did reject Esau as the one through whom his elect nation would be created. And that is perfectly within his right. And so when we get down a few more verses, and we see in verse 16, so then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. How are we imposing salvation upon that when the two examples just previously had nothing to do with salvation and had everything to do with purpose? 
And then we get down a couple more verses and it says, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Verse 20, Shall the thing that uh, formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Who's to say that that honor is salvation and that dishonor is per- perdition when we look up at Jacob and Esau and we look up at Isaac and Ishmael and we see that honor is blessing and dishonor is simply placing lower in priority, not receiving the blessing. And then we continue in verse 22. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted unto destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath afore prepared unto his glory? And then all of a sudden, are we going to impose upon this salvation simply because we're seeing words like wrath and mercy and all of a sudden, we're changing context. That's what we have to do to bring salvation into this passage. We have to change context. And the context gives no indication of change. So if the context gives no indication of changing from being chosen unto blessing to being chosen unto salvation, then why are we in Christendom today changing the context? It's invalid. It's logical. Uh, in, in, in the sense that um, we, we think of words like wrath and destruction and honor and dishonor and, and being chosen and, and what we would come to as a logical idea is this idea of, of um, salvation here, but, but it's not what the Bible is saying. And I'm not trying to say the Bible is illogical. But you know as well as I that there are certain things that we can't just use the ideas of of logic to go A, B, C. We have to recognize that God is beyond us and that His purposes are not ours. And if we submit ourselves to the biblical understanding of God's character, then things do make sense. But if we skew God's character and then we fit Him in, our logic will also be skewed. Even if our logic seems valid, if it has a wrong starting point, it can't have a wrong end point. So if we say that God is electing people unto salvation and other people not, and then we start to read these passages, we're going to get two things that seem to equal a third, but our foundation is wrong. Our starting point is wrong. And so if our starting point is wrong, then everything that follows will be wrong as well. So do you see the foundation that Paul is laying here? That not everyone in Israel is saved by default, that they must still accept the revealed word of God and conform to his expectations because Israel, that national Israel was not about salvation. National Israel was about blessing. And to conform to God's expectations now that Jesus Christ has come and been rejected They must believe on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. They must accept Christ in the same way that we must accept Christ, which is by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Because the election that they are elect unto, being an election of purpose, being uh, and we'll talk about that in a moment, not an election of salvation. So because they were not elect unto salvation, but they were elect unto some different purpose, then they're not 
spiritually seeds of Abraham simply because they're physically seeds of Abraham. And that's what Paul is saying here. That Israel had a different election. That their election was not about salvation just as your election is not about salvation. But perhaps the question now arises, well, if Jacob was elect and Esau was not, and Paul begins this conversation by saying that the children of flesh are not the children of God, then doesn't that mean that God is choosing people to become the children of God and others not to be? Yes. Except in verse 8, Paul parallels the term children of God with the seed. Speaking within the context of two different contexts here. As I just mentioned, the reality that Israel is the physical seed of Abraham, therefore endowed unto the, the physical promises that come with their election unto a particular nation, the election that comes through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but not by default endowed to the spiritual election, that spiritual promise that spiritual reality of salvation that came as each man chooses to receive the revelation of, of God for himself. Perhaps it will become even more clear as we turn to the next, um, the next occurrence of this word found in Romans chapter 11. In Romans 11, the word election comes up three times. It comes up in verse 5, in verse 7, and verse 28. By the time we hit Romans 11, Paul is now paralleling the election that you and I have with the election that Israel had as a nation. And the parallels are, are complete. Just as Israel became one of the elect, excuse me, an Israeli, just as, as one in the nation of Israel became one of the elect, one of God's chosen people, when he was born and then circumcised into the nation so too you and I become one of the elect, one of God's chosen people, when we are born into the church and our hearts are circumcised unto Christ through belief on the name of Jesus Christ. By extension, a national Israelite is not a part of the election of grace that we take part in just because he's of the physical stock of Abraham. And that's what Paul's been teaching. So, too, you and I are not a part of the election of grace just because we're in a church or just because we have a Christian family. An Israelite did not become a part of the nation of Israel because he was one of God's chosen people. An Israelite became one of God's chosen people because he was born into Israel. In the same way, we do not become a part of the church because we are elect. We become elect when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior and therefore become a part of the church. The, the parallel is complete if we will only allow our hearts to see it. So the election of grace, just like the election of Israel, was not of works, but of grace. Israel did not obtain their election by anything that they had done, but because they were born into Israel. Israel does not obtain the election of grace just because they become one of God's chosen people of the physical nation, but only those who received it by faith 
are entered into the election of grace as well as into the promises unto national Israel. And where this becomes very, very clear is in verse 28. Let me read verses 5 through 7. I didn't read them with this context, but let's read them after the explanation at least. Even so, then, at this present time, there is a remnant that would be of national Israel according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. So Israel did not obtain the election of grace as a nation. Only those who accepted it by faith received the election of grace. The rest of Israel is blind to it. But then notice verse 28, and this is essential. So Paul, as he concludes here in verse 28, he says, As concerning the gospel, they, that's Israel, are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for their father's sake. Wait a minute. Paul is speaking of Israel here. And he describes them in this way. He says that they are enemies of the gospel, but they are beloved of God because they are his elect. How does that work if election and salvation are synonymous? If election and salvation are synonymous terms, how is it that Israel can be an enemy to the gospel, but also beloved of God for their election? See, it doesn't work. Election does not, in the scriptures, the term election is not referring to salvation. This passage makes this very clear that the term election is considered by Paul as well as, we'll see, by Peter to be a different concept than the concept of accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ. National Israel is not elect unto the gospel, But they were and are elect unto the promises given to Abraham because of of God choosing Abraham. Israel is elect unto these promises because they are of the physical heritage of Abraham. They are elect because they are national Jews. By extension, the church is elect through the gospel. We are elect unto all the promises of eternal life and holiness because of the spiritual heritage of Abraham, because he believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. We are elect not unto salvation, but rather we are elect because of our salvation unto great and precious promises. Election is an effect of our salvation, not a cause of our salvation. Uh, now, at this point, I, we need to take a brief moment to discuss the differences and similarities between Israel's election and the church's election. They are different in that those born into the nation of Israel were given uh, promises of a physical kingdom, of a physical land, a seed, and a blessing. Those born into the church are given promises of a spiritual kingdom spiritual blessings in this and then in the life to come with God. But these two elections do indeed share a very similar purpose. As a matter of fact, 
let me put it this way, and I don't, it's not wrong to say it this way. We share the same purpose. We were elect unto the same purpose. And in fact, the purpose that Israel was elect unto, the reason why the church became the election is because Israel failed. So Israel was set aside in order that the church could pick up the slack and do for God what Israel was not doing for God. Look in Romans 11 again, you're there, beginning in verse 13. Bible says, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. So Paul says, I'm writing this to you as Gentiles because that's my office, but my point, my desire here is that uh, there would be some of the national Israel, my flesh, my people, who would, who would be provoked to want to emulate the church, to receive the same blessing that the church has received, to step back into the election of God that has been set aside for them because of their failure to achieve God's ends. Verse 15, For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Paul says when when Israel was set aside, the world was reconciled unto God. That's Jesus Christ's first advent. He says when Israel is finally reconciled unto God, that will be the time of, of the end. That is when the resurrection of the dead will occur. The second advent of Jesus Christ. In His first advent, Jesus was rejected by the Jews and the world was uh, ushered into the church along with believing Jews. When the, when the nation itself finally comes to accept Christ as their Savior, which uh, Romans 11 tells us will happen, as well as uh, the book of Revelation and several of the Old Testament prophets, when this happens, Paul says, what, what will there be but a resurrection from the dead? Verse 16, For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches, but if thou boast... Thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, The branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Uh-oh. Are we just, uh, go, uh, within context, if we're talking about salvation, did he just say that we can lose our salvation? Well, if we're talking about salvation, then yes, indeed, He did. But if we're not talking about salvation and we're talking about election, well, then all of a sudden, the context changes. And Paul says, look, they were elect unto a purpose, and the purpose unto which they were elect was to be rightly related to God so that they could show the rest of the world how to be rightly related unto God. They failed at that purpose. Why? Because they didn't have faith. They didn't believe God. They didn't obey His Word. They, so, certainly, it was faith that would bring them into a place where they could accomplish their purpose, but their purpose was not to have saving faith. Their purpose was to be rightly related to God so that they could show the world how to be rightly related to God. 
They failed at their purpose. So God, gra- he, he cut them out of his election. He cut them out of his purpose. Now, what did he do? Someone had to show the world Christ. So he then grafted you and I into his election. He allowed the church to do those who have been saved, right? You and I have been brought into the olive tree, not of salvation, but the olive tree of his purpose. And then Paul warns here, look, if God didn't spare Israel who had this great election chosen for them, then take note that God could also remove the church if the church will not do what God has asked them to do. God will remove you as a part of God's church if you refuse to do what God has called you to do. If you, as one of His elect, because you have been saved, do not properly manifest the glory of God and be rightly related to God so that He can show others how to, so that you can show others how to be rightly related to God. Don't be surprised if God removes you not from salvation. There's nowhere in the Bible that seems to indicate under any circumstances that we can lose our salvation. In fact, the opposite is true. But He can remove you from your purpose. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, some weeks ago, we studied the Lord's Supper and Paul spoke of how they were improperly manifesting the the Lord's Supper, how they were being gluttonous and selfish and rude. And he says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sickly and, and, and many sleep. The idea that the Lord was chastening those who were not properly reflecting a knowledge of Jesus Christ in this remembrance, who were not proper taking this remembrance to heart. This was the idea that Paul was saying, that because these men and women were not reflecting, were not taking advantage of the election that God had given, He removed them. They died because they were not properly being a testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, though they were of Christ. That is what Paul is saying here. That is the context. The context that it's not talking about salvation. Find it in the text. You can't. Behold, verse 22, therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity. God was severe on on Israel. They fell. They were cut out of God's election. But toward thee, goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So if they stop abiding in unbelief and they accept the, the, the means by which election comes, if they accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, then they will be brought back into God's election. They will be grafted back in. Verse 24, For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, being the natural 
which be the natural branches, be grafted in their own olive tree. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. God has promised throughout the Old Testament that he will circumcise the hearts of the Jews, that he will take away their sins, that he will deliver them from their enemies, that he will give them a kingdom, and they still have that purpose. But they have been cut off of God's election so that we as God's church can fulfill his election, and then there's coming a day where they will accept Christ as their Savior, and they will be brought back into the olive tree of God's election, which is to be rightly related to God so that they can show the world how to be rightly related to God. And then because they are back in the olive tree of God's election, they are therefore qualified to receive the promises that God had given to Abraham so many years ago. Election will be the effect of them accepting their Messiah, Jesus Christ, not the cause of their accepting their Messiah, Jesus Christ. I really hope this is becoming clear. I, I, I know this topic can be confusing and I'm by no means a, a great communicator. But may God's Holy Spirit help you to understand through His Word what my tongue fails to explain clearly. One more passage and then we'll end up back in 1 Thessalonians 1. We're going to skip, go out of order here to get to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. 2 Peter 1.10 We'll begin in verse 5 for context. The Bible says, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience. And to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. Does not this command to make our calling and election sure make as much sense, if not more sense, when we realize that election is not salvation but service to God? When we realize that we become elect when we get saved as opposed to getting saved because we are elect? When Peter speaks of adding virtue and knowledge and temperance and patience and godliness and brotherly kindness and charity to our faith on top of our faith, does it not make so much more sense to see these as the means by which we make our election sure? That as we grow in these graces and these virtues and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are adding unto the purpose that God has called unto us, that we are strengthening the purpose to, to declare Christ to the world? Doesn't that make so much more sense than to say that we are strengthening our uh, election unto salvation by adding all of these uh, fruits of the Spirit? Not that we solidify our salvation by adding godly virtues, but rather that we solidify our purpose in salvation. 
And as we add these elements of Christian sanctification to our faith, we become better positioned to fulfill the expectations of our election as believers. See its effect, not cause. Do you see it? Well, let's head back to our passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 as we attempt to wrap up. This is the final instance, and technically 2 Peter was, as we go backwards in the Scripture. But we have looked at every instance of this word, ekloge in the Greek, election or selection in our New Testament, uh, as far as at least the King James is concerned and the Textus Receptus. I don't know what the critical Greek text um, does. I don't, I don't typically uh, study it uh, very closely. I, I look for some discrepancies at times, but I don't study it closely. So in 1 Thessalonians 1.4, Paul says, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. The beginning of this verse is well translated to know. However, it is a word that is rooted not in, in uh, head knowledge as much as in something that you see. It's knowledge, but carries an implication of experience or seeing something for yourself. And remember our context from last week. Paul states that he has confidence in their salvation because of their work of faith, that they turn from God to idols, because of their labor of love, that they are serving the living and true God, and because of their patience of hope, that they are waiting for God from heaven. So Paul strongly links these evidences of their salvation with his knowledge by experience and his confidence that they are among the elect of God. That as he sees all of the effects of their salvation, he recognizes that they have come into their election and that they are well living out the election that God has uh, designated them unto because they have been saved, which is to be rightly related to God, so that they can show the rest of the world how to be rightly related to God. And within the context of 1 Thessalonians, this makes much more sense too. God's uh, Paul's not simply saying, I know that you... Uh, were elect unto salvation because you're showing the fruit of salvation. He's saying, I can see, I can recognize that you are living out God's purpose for you because you got saved, that you have a purpose and I can see that you are living it out and it is so clear that you are saved. It is so clear because you are living out your election. And the whole rest of the, the chapter is about how good of a testimony they are to the world around them, as well as the next several chapters. What Paul is saying is that their election, the fact that they are in the church and therefore a part of God's purpose, is confirmed by their manner of living. And this is entirely consistent with what we see in the New Testament concerning what it means to be elect. So while this was perhaps a little bit of a different sermon, maybe a little more academic, I ask you these questions as we close. Do you have the concept of election properly delineated in your mind? If you have questions about uh, the idea of election still, will you come and see me? I have a, a very helpful book that I can give you as well. We can sit down and talk about it some more. I fear for the church today and the way that they impose election as a synonymous with salvation. 
I fear what it's doing to the next generation. I am not here to say that there are no positive benefits uh, to um, the viewpoint of Reformed theology. But I also can very confidently state that they are wrong as it concerns the doctrine of election. And if you are a believer in this room today, listening online, may I ask you, when we consider the election of God, are you fulfilling your election? Are you living rightly related to God so that you can show others how to be rightly related to God? Are, are you doing what God has asked you to do? Are you reflecting Christ? You are elect if you are a believer. Are you living it? Election is about your responsibility as a Christian. See, when you got saved, that wasn't the end. It wasn't mission accomplished for God to see you enter into His kingdom. When you got saved, it was rightly said that you were born again. You were born. You became an infant and you have growing to do. You have a job to do now. You are now elect unto a purpose and that purpose is to show the world Christ. Are you doing it? What a blessing it is that you have been chosen unto a purpose that because you are saved, God has given you something to do that you are not just to go loosey-goosey through life. You're not just to drift. This was the whole problem with the Corinthian church. Paul also warned against it in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in grace uh, sin, that grace may abound, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He says, look, you've been saved. You have a purpose to live now. So do it. You have a purpose. You are elect. So do it. As a final note, I hope, I, I, I hate preaching messages that I feel like are preaching against something because we don't need to preach against things. If we preach the truth, then error just falls away. And so I, I hope you don't feel as though I was, I was specifically um, preaching against Reformed theology here while I do disagree with it and I've made that plain uh, throughout. What I am doing is trying to teach, or I was trying to teach, the proper terms of election and simply felt compelled to contrast it with that which is regularly understood and improperly understood as the concept of election. And I pray that that this uh, would not leave a sour taste in your mouth, but would rather uh, help you as I seek to humbly and genuinely introduce you to a different idea as it comes to this idea, uh, this doctrine of election. Let's pray together as we close.